If you'd find your way to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be moving through verses 1 through 7 this morning in thinking about the story that Luke is, is writing down so that can, people can have a strong faith. I would like you to consider a story this morning, an elongated story, but it'll serve us well as we get into the passage today. It was an article inscribed, it happened on the Brookway, Brooklyn subway. See, there's a man by the name of Marcel Sternberger on January 10th, 1948. As his normal pattern was, he took the 909 Long Island Railroad from a suburban home in Woodside, New York. He caught the subway into the city. As he was sitting on the subway, he remembered, or on the railway, he remembered that Laszlo Victor, a Hungarian friend who lived in Brooklyn, was ill. He decided that... uh, He would get off the Long Island Railway. Then he took the subway going into Brooklyn. He stayed until mid-afternoon visiting with his Hungarian friend. Then he traveled to the Manhattan-bound line subway to his Fifth Avenue office. I'll let Marcel take it from there in his own words in the article. He says the subway car was very crowded. It seemed like there was no chance of getting a seat. But just as I entered, a man sitting by the door suddenly jumped up to leave. I slipped into his empty space. I've been living in New York long enough to start to not start conversations with strangers, but being a photographer, I have the peculiar habit of analyzing people's faces. I was struck by the features of the passenger on my left side. He's probably in his late 30s when he glanced up. His eyes seemed as if he was hurting. As he was reading a Hungarian language newspaper and something prompted me to say in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. The man seemed surprised that I would address him in his native language. He answered politely, you may have it and read it now, I'll have time later on. During the next half hour ride, we had quite a conversation. He said his name was Bella Paskin, a law student when World War II started, he'd been put in a German labor battalion and sent to Ukraine. Later, he's captured by the Russians and put to work burying German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot until he reaches home in Debrecen, a large city in eastern Hungary. He said, I I know Debrecen quite well and talked to him for a while about it. Then he told me the rest of his story. When he went to the apartment he once occupied with his father and mother and brothers and sisters, he found strangers living there. None of them have ever heard of his family. As he went upstairs to his apartment that he and his wife once had, it was also occupied by strangers. As he was leaving, he said, he was full of sadness, and a a boy ran after him called, saying, Paskin Baski, Paskin Baski, which means Uncle Paskin. The child was the son of some old neighbors of his. He went to the boy's home and talked to his parents. They informed him his entire family had been killed. The Nazis took them, and they took your wife to Auschwitz. Now, Auschwitz was the worst Nazi concentration camp. Paskin gave up all hope. A few days later, he was too heartsick to remain any longer in Hungary. He set out again on foot. He stole across the border after border until he finally reached Paris. He managed to immigrate to the United States in October 1946, or 47, excuse me, just three months before the conversation that he was having with Marcel. 
all the time, Marcel says, as he was talking, I kept thinking somehow his story seemed familiar. A young woman whom I had recently met at the home of some friends said that she was from Debrecen. She had sent, been sent to Auschwitz. From there, she'd been transferred to a work camp in Germany working on munitions factory. Her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. Later, she'd been liberated by the Americans and was brought here on the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. Her story had moved me so much I'd written down her address and her phone number, intending to invite her to meet my family and help her to relieve some of the terrible emptiness that she was feeling. It seemed impossible there could be any connection between these two people. But he said, I... As I neared the station, I fumbled anxiously for my address book. I asked um, him in a casual voice, not to disrupt him. I asked um, him, what was your wife's name? By chance, is it Maria? He turned pale. Yes. How did you know? He looked as if he was about to faint. Let's get off the train. I took him by the arm at the next station and led him to a phone booth. He stood there like a man in a trance while I dialed her phone number. It seemed hour before Maria Paskin answered. Later I learned that her room was alongside of a telephone where there was a habit of people never answering it. There was one phone for the hallway, and so she wouldn't answer it because no one would be calling for her. She got to the point, though, she was so frustrated it kept on ringing, she got up and answered the phone. He says, when I, when I heard her voice at last, I told her who I was. My name was Marcel. I asked her to describe her husband. She seemed surprised at the question, but she gave me his description. Then I asked her where she lived in Debrecen, and she told me her address. Asking her to hold the line, I turned to Paskin, and I said, Did your wife, you and your wife, live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella exclaimed. He was white as a sheet and trembling. Try to be calm, I urged him. Something miraculous is about to happen to you. Here, take this telephone. Talk to your wife. He nodded his head in bewilderment, his eyes bright with tears. He took the receiver, listened. He heard his wife's voice and he started crying. This is Bella. This is Bella. Then he began to mumble hysterically, seeing that the poor fellow was so excited and couldn't talk coherently. I took the receiver from his shaking hands and said, Stay where you are, I told Maria. I'm going to send your husband to you. He'll be there in a few minutes. The story goes on to tell about the fact that Marcel put Bella in a cab, sent him to the house. He didn't think he should be there. He met up later with them, and they described the moments in which they first saw one another. They were paralyzed with emotion, struck riveted over the fact that now they were back together. They continued to live in Brooklyn. And Bella said that he is confident that no horrible misfortune will ever befall them again because providence has brought us together. It was simply meant to be. Now there are some people who might read that story, skeptical people, people who believe in things like luck and chance. They may say something like, well, what a coincidence. One of the things that we've been finding out about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke wrote his Gospel 
to dispel the notion of coincidence, to tamp down the idea that there's such a thing as luck in this world. He writes it so that people, he says in verse 4, that can... Theophilus, who's been taught, who's been catechized in something so that he can move from simply wondering if what he believes is true to absolutely knowing. At the end of the article, it said, Was it chance or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? And if you are here this morning and believe that the Bible is true and that God wrote it to tell us things about himself and the things about us, you know that what he says is absolutely true. To convince from information about who God may be to be certain about who God is. And this morning I would like you to consider the idea of God's sovereign faithfulness. God's sovereign faithfulness. Essentially when we say that, it's the idea that God is strong enough to do what he said he will do. He is sovereign and he is faithful. I'd like you to consider it like this illustration. We go through life very much like Marcel and Bella. And we go through life and we encounter things. We encounter relationships, people, experiences, jobs, sometimes disease, heartache. And very often we see these things like I would imagine them like the glove. We don't see God necessarily in these events. We see the circumstances. We're represented by this glove. The people that you run into, sometimes you might think that doesn't have really any bearing on your life, but you'd be mistaken. Because if God is sovereignly faithful, he's working the events out in your life and the events out in my life to weave a story, a story about who he is and what he has come to do. No detail is too small. No circumstances beneath the radar of God's working. And God's sovereign faithfulness is in the circumstances of our life in which we see things that are happening. Maybe it's the heartache. Maybe it's a family relationship. Maybe it's an experience that's tough for you to get over. Can I encourage you this morning to not merely see the glove, but see the animating character behind the circumstances, namely God. That God has put his hand, you could say, in the glove of what you see as circumstances, but as his moving. His working, His controlling, His bringing things about. Some of you need to run to this idea because God's sovereign faithfulness is the way you'll escape the tension of feeling like this world is flying apart. You need to remember this. Some of you need to remember this because in the relationships you're experiencing, maybe at work, maybe in your family, you need to remember and meditate on God's sovereign faithfulness that He'll never leave you, He'll never forsake you. That God works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God animates the circumstances of our life. And I would say that that story illustrates that. The story of Bella, Marcel. And this morning I would like you to consider another animation of that story. In the passage that you have before us, we have a picture of a bridge. We talked about that last week. It's the idea that in this passage we're going from Old Testament to New Testament. God has called his shot, as we said last week in Genesis 3.15, that an offspring is going to come. And throughout the entire Old Testament, the battle between God and Satan, between holding the people of Israel together so that the Messiah can come through, has been the storyline. And God has shown himself mighty. God has shown himself sovereign. God has shown himself faithful.
As we approach the passage today, we've seen and we talked about last week this bridge because there hasn't been a prophetic word for some 400 years. There hasn't been a miracle from a prophet in 800 years. There hasn't been an angelic visitation in 500 years. And then we show up in Luke chapter 1. And we've been building, we've been crossing this bridge from the old covenant into the new covenant. And this morning, we want you to see and consider the next one of these bridge crossings, if you will, as we move across it. And this morning, I'd like you, before we even read the passage, think about the passage in a little bit of a different way. Just like on your phone, you have kids know point nine or that picture, view. The passage does this morning. We're going to move from the panoramic view down to the 16.9, then down to the portrait. Almost like a funnel. Think about it like that. But throughout all of it, I don't want you to keep your, take your eye off one reality. And that's the sovereign faithfulness of God. That he is absolutely putting on display in this passage. We're going to think about the details. But I hope by the end of our time today, that you'll be more apt to worship God. That you'll be more inclined to trust him in that tension point that's in your life. Let's read the passage together. We're in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. This is what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swathing clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I think in this passage we have three particular expressions of the sovereign faithfulness of God. In other words, that God is strong enough to do what he says he will do. Notice the first one. I think in verse 1 through 3, this expression happens on the world stage. On the world stage. This is that panoramic view. This is that taking in all of the sights around you. Now, why do I say that? If you notice, it says, in the day, in those days. It's a habit of Luke to do this. He's framing the moment. If you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. So what he's doing now in chapter 2, he's just pulling the view back a little further. And he's saying not only in the days of Herod, which would have been localized into the area they would have known in Israel. Now he pulls it back to the panoramic view. In the days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We're not talking just Israel now. We're talking the entire Roman Empire. Basically, the civilized world. You see, he'd been talking about what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and Mary, the angelic visitation. All of those are kind of close quarter scenes. They're those, those views, those moments in which they're in a home or they're in the temple. There's, but now he pulls out the camera and pulls the wide screen back. And God has been sovereign. He's come true with everything he's said so far. 
But the tension now is, if you're reading this and you're a Jewish person at this time, God lives in Jerusalem. He's the creator of all, but rarely is he framed within the picture of someone like Caesar Augustus. What you have to also know about this is, Caesar Augustus is not his name. It's not. His name is Gaius Octavius. So why does Luke use his title versus his name? Again, I think it serves that panoramic view. You see, he's not merely a guy. He's the God-man to the Roman people during this time. Matter of fact, there's a place in the hometown of Herodotus, who was a famous Greek writer at this time, has an inscription written about Caesar Augustus, and it says, Caesar Augustus, Savior of the world. You see the, the framing that Luke is doing. As he's beginning to discuss the coming of the true Savior, he frames it within the picture of what the people saw the Savior to be. Now, he says this went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And that idea of framing it in that moment is helpful because this is the beginning of his reign. It's kind of like if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings when Bilbo Baggins in his opening line of the Fellowship of the Rings says, The 22nd day of September in the year 1400, by the Shire Reckoning, Bagan, Bagshot Row, Hobbiton, Wethfarling, the Shire, Middle Earth, the third age of this world. In other words, he goes through this the Shire and then he progressively goes to the areas all the way out till eventually he gets to the Middle Earth. And that's what he's doing here. The writer is writing this out, that this registration should happen and it comes from Caesar Augustus in his days and it affects the entire world. As you look down through that, it says that decree went out that they should all be registered. Know this, though, before we get to the registration of what is entailed by that, let's get to know who this Gaius Octavius is. This is important because if we find Caesar Augustus in this spot, how did he get to that spot? If we're thinking of the sovereign faithfulness of God, there certainly were people that this day said, seems like everything's out of control. God is the only savior of the world. And yet they're calling this guy the savior of the world. People could be panicked. People of the faith could be frustrated, wondering what God's doing. They need to realize that God is animating himself in the life of this Caesar Augustus to bring about something that you and I look back on, but they're caught in the middle of. Gaius Octavius was given his name when he was born on September 23rd, 63 B.C., His father was also known as Gaius Octavius. He was a knight and a senator and a praetor. Octavius' father died when he was young, so Octavius' mother, Atia, primarily raised him. And he had an uncle by the name of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar adopted Julius, also known as Caesar. The Roman Republic had changed. It actually then became the Roman Empire. And you can see themes throughout Star Wars in the story of what happened in Rome. By the time Octavius took 
his rule and reign to be known as Caesar Augustus, he brought in what was called the Pax Romana, and from 27 BC to about 180 AD, some 200 years, there was peace in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire extended everywhere from England to Morocco, all the way east to Iraq. This hasn't happened in modern civilization, the peace that that brought. And notice what the Pax Romano brought under his reign, Caesar Augustus's reigns. Roads were established. Roads throughout the known world. So the economies could flourish. There could be trade. There could be people visiting from other lands. Their Greek language became the primary mode of communication. So that people knew Greek. It wasn't in any time in history was there a time in which people knew a common language like this, and yet before the Tower of Babel would have been the only time. Not only that, that he was, uh, the Romans considered the first day of their new year, September 23rd, 63 BC, the day that he was crowned Caesar Augustus. In other words, I'd like you to consider that Caesar Augustus is that glove. And God is the hand inside of the glove. Moving details around. Think about all the details related to the rise of Octavius. Gaius Octavius. The conspiracy within the Senate. The political movement of the day. The roads that had been established because of his rule. The Pax Romana, the peace. So that Christianity could expand like never before. You see how God is showing his sovereign faithfulness to get his message about Christ out into the nations. See, when we read this passage and we see of this idea of a census being out, it's more than that. God is sovereignly manipulating the moment so that he can make much of the story that he is telling, the story of redemption that you and I come and celebrate every morning on Sunday. But it says there, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This was something that had to be determined. Uh, The Roman Empire would do this for two primary reasons, to determine how many military men were in the empire. But also, and primarily for this one, the amount of taxation. Depending on who you read, this would happen every five to 14 years. There would be a census, and it says this was the first one that was assigned to be taking place. But as we talked about, the common language, the senators working, the rise of Octavius, the demand for a census to create a governing authority to establish within the Roman world, the system of roads, all of these things conspired. All of these things were circumstances. And God's hand was in the glove of moving Joseph and Mary to where they needed to be. This is an expression of God's sovereign faithfulness. Think about the millions and millions of decisions that needed to be made for all of these things to come into view in order to put Joseph in a situation where we read the next, verse 4 and 5, the next expression of God's sovereign faithfulness. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now it says when he went up, the idea there is, is that Bethlehem was 2,564 feet above sea level, and they would go 
up from Nazareth, which was 1,830 feet. So while they're traveling south, some 70 miles, they're actually going up in order to make it home. Now, why is this important? Why does Luke have this here? If you'll notice, this is not the first time he's talked about David. Matter of fact, it says in Matthew 1, 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Luke 1, 32 through 33 talks about he'll be the son of the most high. Speaking of Christ, the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Verse 69 of chapter 1 of Luke says, He raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. All of this stuff keeps going back through David. And we have now Joseph connected with that. He was of the house and the lineage of David. That's a clue. Because the Messiah is to come through the house of David to take on the eternal reign of David's throne that he was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, some might say, well, this passage specifically is talking about Micah 5.2, where it talks about, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrata, are little, too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming is from of old, from the ancient of days. That was a prophecy given in 700 B.C., And some might say, well, that was talking about David, wasn't it? It wasn't talking about David. You see, uh, David lived in 1000 BC. This prophecy about a ruler coming from Bethlehem happened 200 years after David passed away. Now, if we connect the dots between a promise to David to have a throne and a ruler to come and sit on that throne, according to Micah 5.2, that this ruler would then rule in David's place forever. And now we see God moving Joseph to Judea, to the city of David, called Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Do you see all the details that are necessary for that to take place? Not only at the panoramic view of Caesar Augustus, but all the little details, the little supplies, the little decisions that need to be made, the when they travel. And notice, by the way, as we go further into the story, it just happens to be near the time in which Mary's pregnant is due. She's due to give birth. You see how God is sovereignly working in his faithfulness to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Not only on the world stage, But in the life of Joseph, and look at that third expression in verse 6 and 7, through the experience of Mary. So we've got the world stage, the life of Joseph, and then through the experience of Mary in verse 6 and 7. And notice the way the the verse is written here. These two verses. Pay attention, because you could miss it. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Did you see it? Were you paying attention? Do you notice any particular proper names in that those two verses? Mary is mentioned in the previous section as it relates to Joseph. She's only a pronoun here. She gave birth to her firstborn son, 
wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in an angel because there's no place for them in the inn. Nondescript. Almost not significant. What is going on here? While they were there, a time came for her to give birth. I mean, come on, Luke. I mean, couldn't you be a little bit more flamboyant about that? Isn't this more special? What is going on? I think the point that Luke is making is that God is working in the panoramic, the Caesar Augustus, to move the pieces around the chessboard. Call for attacks. Joseph, in his life, to move him into that place, Bethlehem. He's just kind of going through life. Joseph isn't thinking about this. Joseph, not for one moment, is going, oh, Caesar Augustus, this is the moment. He's putting me back into... He's not doing any of that. He's just going through life. And Luke is putting the pieces on the chessboard for you. And when we get to this moment, he doesn't mention Mary. He calls firstborn son, swaddling clothes in a manger, no place for them in the inn. You see, you should be stopping and reading this passage and saying, wait a minute, we've gone from the greatest ruler in the known world, the august, the very savior of the world. And by the time we get to verse 7, we don't even have a name for the baby. The mother isn't even mentioned. It's in this manger, a feeding trough in this no-name town. But if you stop long enough, you recognize God's hand in the glove that is moving these circumstances that must have been flying past Joseph and Mary not knowing exactly how it all fits together. But God is flexing to show his sovereign faithfulness. That when he says that he's going to do something, he's strong enough to make it happen in ways that you and I may never put together, but he can never be thwarted. He absolutely is moving in the circumstances of this situation. Luke draws you in. He draws Theophilus in. Theophilus, I'm sure, has been taught that God is sovereignly faithful. But maybe it felt like it was a long way off in his life. And so as Luke is recording these things, he's going from the beginning. It's undeniable that God is sovereignly faithful. So I've got to ask you, as we consider this idea for us today, I've got to ask, how is God sovereignly moving in your life? If we could just for one moment identify maybe some of the things in your life. Maybe it's a job situation, family, circumstance. It could be just an emotional time in your life. It could be some tension that you're feeling. I don't know what it is. But would you please try to identify it? Then I'd like you to do this. Then I'd like you to see and consider, pray. God, would you give me the wisdom? James talks about this. Give me the wisdom in James 1.5 that I can understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. As we've talked about before, it's amazing in the King James language, it says that if you pray that prayer, God will abradeth not. 25 cent word, actually today it's probably a dollar uh, word, has the idea that God, every time you ask that, you can guarantee that he will guide you into some understanding of it. In other words, God never gets to the point and goes, man, you've been asking for this all day and I'm getting tired. 
God abradeth not. So would you do that? Think about what you're going through, something you're facing. Maybe it's a financial crisis. It could be all sorts of stuff, but I'd ask you to do this. Identify that that is, and then ask God to give you insight so you might understand what his hand is doing in the gloves, the glove of that circumstance of your life. How is he animating himself? Because in this passage, there can be no doubt that he is animating his sovereign faithfulness to the people. And our God, is faithful. He is faithful to his name and he is faithful to you. If you've trusted in Christ, if he is your life, you've repented of your sins and trusted in him, no matter how far you feel away, he is a faithful God and he's calling you to remember that this morning. A few questions I would like to ask you as we finish up our time. First question is this. How does the sovereign faithfulness of God humble you? How does it humble you? When you think of the details surrounding the birth of Christ, how God puts rulers in place, puts circumstances in place, situations in place, how does that humble you? How does that overwhelm you? Even the story of Bella and Maria. That God sovereignly moves things that aren't coincidental and it's not luck. It should humble us to the majesty of our sovereign, faithful God. Second question, how does reflecting on this quality of God change you? You see, you were never meant to consider these things and it simply is added to your knowledge base. See, information such as this is always meant to change you in the moment. Change the way you see things. The way you see friends and neighbors and family members. If it doesn't change the way you see, you need to linger over the truth a little bit longer. Because it's always meant to change. Third question would be this. Who is it in your life who needs to hear about this God that we follow? Who is it? We said this last week, we'll say it again. It's never meant to stay with you. You're a tube. You're not a wall. It's meant to go through you to someone else. In a real way, you don't really own these truths until you give these truths away. And God is calling us to help our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our families with these truths. Is there ever been a time more needful of people to understand the sovereign faithfulness of our God? I can't think so. And next week I'll think the same thing. Because we always need to understand the sovereign faithfulness of God. When God says he will do something, he will do it. And we want to be those people who struggle like Peter and yet follow. We don't want to be those people like Judas who don't follow. Because God, if he says he will bring, as we've sang today, that we've escaped the wrath of God because of the death of Christ taking our punishment... The reality is God is faithful to his name and he will bring judgment. So this morning, if you're here and you're far away from Christ and you've never given your life over to Christ, God is sovereignly faithful to uphold his justice. And if you would die in your sins, he will execute his justice because he is a sovereign, faithful God. So in this moment, run to him. Run to him as the savior of your sins. He offers you forgiveness for your sin if you would repent. 
and see him as your savior alone. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. That is the certainty that Luke is writing to Theophilus about that we want to know this morning. Our God is sovereign and he is faithful. Be encouraged, Grace Fellowship, that we have an awesome God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful that you are sovereign and you are faithful. We don't understand uh, much that is going on in our life as it relates to how you're moving. And yet we believe this to be true because that's what you've done throughout the entire Bible. You've moved in ways that weren't contingent on people understanding. Very often people were confused, didn't understand the entire picture. But as we look back, we, we see these stories and we see this picture coming together. We see the panoramic. We just see the focused in a little bit more. And then finally we see the portrait, which is Christ. We thank you for your goodness to us and helping us see this. And we pray that you would inspire this to change us and that we may be quick to tell other people about you. For you are incredible. You are our sovereign, faithful God for which we find is the band starting in a couple weeks, uh, which we're calling Next Steps. One of the things that the elders have been convinced and convicted about is that when we spend time in here considering truths from God's word, we recognize there's a long way from Sunday to Monday. In other words, you might not exactly know, how do I apply this in my life? Or you might not even know specifically what God is calling you to, and you might need just be prayer might be encouragement. Well, Next Steps is going to be a a team of people that are going to be caring for you, that if you find yourself at the end of a message and you say, I'd really like to have prayer for that, you're going to be able to contact this Next Step. We'll give you the information in the coming weeks. You'll be able to reach out and say, I'd like to have somebody pray for me about that. And someone will contact you and pray with you. You might be thinking, well, I want to apply this, but I don't know how. And our care team will reach out to you and they will help walk you through how the Lord might have you apply this in your life. We're just calling it next steps because we think that information for information's sake was never Christ's intent in the church. It's always been meant so that we be transformed in the character and priorities of Christ. How we think, how we live. And we recognize sometimes you need help in taking that next step. So that's what we would like to do. And now as we get ready to sing, I would like you to think about this lyric. We talk about the worth of Christ. We think about the idea that he is worthy. Notice within one of these lyrics speaks about David and that he is, Jesus is the Messiah and he is worthy and that God went to great pains to show that he was the son of David so that we could recognize even in the song we sing next, the sovereign faithfulness of our God.